Hey, in 2003, I was madly in love. Now, to be clear, I'm still madly in love. Don't get me wrong, okay? But in 2003, I had met my wife about a year before, and we knew we were going to get married. It was just, it was obvious. You know how sometimes people say, when you know, you know. That's not true for everybody, but it really was true for us. By the time we had dated for just a couple of months, it was pretty obvious to both of us that we were going to spend the rest of our lives together. And so I started thinking through, how am I going to propose to this girl? What am I going to do? I mean, it needs to be amazing right? It needs to be over-the-top awesome when I propose to Amber. And the reason that it needed to be over-the-top awesome was not so that I could win her over. It's not like she was hesitant. She's like, I don't know about this guy, and I'm trying to do something that's going to push her over the line. No, the reason that it needed to be over-the-top awesome, this grand gesture, was because, first of all, I wanted this to be something that represented how much I loved her right? So I didn't want it to be small and subtle and insignificant because I didn't feel like that's how our relationship was. That's number one. The second reason that I really wanted this to be a strong proposal was because this is going to be a story that we're telling for the rest of our lives, right? And so I didn't want to be in my 40s at some dinner party and somebody's like, Amber, how did Dan propose to you? And she's like, well, we were in the parking lot of Arby's. (laughs) Now, look, if you propose in the parking lot of Arby's, I'm sure it was wonderful. I'm not casting shade, okay? I just wanted to have something that she would be proud to tell years and years in the future. So I came up with what I thought was an incredibly romantic way to propose. We were at a minor league hockey game. No, I'm just kidding. That's not how it went either. We went to Bible college together. That's where we first met, was in uh, Bible college. And we went to a school that had a very historic and beautiful campus in Fort Worth, Texas. It was really gorgeous. It was a quite nice place. And part of the campus on the very west edge was a formal tea garden, which is kind of weird at a Bible college, but that's what they had because this thing had been around since formal tea gardens were, you know, a thing. And so in this formal tea garden, it was very gorgeous. It had these stone walls encircling the whole place. It had a beautiful gazebo a giant water fountain at different times of the year, not in the middle of the Texas heat, but the rest of the seasons. There were nice flowers everywhere. And this tea garden, this place on campus was actually pretty important to Amber and I, because when we first started dating, we would go to the tea garden and we would have long talks and long makeout sessions. And like it was, (laughs) yeah, like you didn't do that. Come on, lighten up prudes. All right. So we would go there and do what dating couples did. And so I said, this is going to be a perfect spot to propose. Not only was it really nice and it had special meaning to us, but it was actually the highest point in Tarrant County, Texas, which meant it was 600 feet above sea level, you guys. It was way up there. Because Texas is flat, thankfully, you could see for miles and miles in any direction. And it overlooked the skyline of downtown Fort Worth. And so I said, this is it. This is where I'm going to propose. And so my idea, my, my proposal, revolved around getting tons and tons of candles. I know that's a little cliche, but whatever. I was 22, so, you know. And I thought, I'm going to invite her down to the tea garden. I'm going to be dressed in a suit to the nines. I'm going to look like Joshua today. You know, I'm just going to be looking good. And she's going to walk in, and it's going to be grand and beautiful, right, with all these candles lit. And it would have been if I had accounted for the wind, Because I didn't think about the wind when I went out and spent $300 on white candles. Now understand, in Bible college, I got paid $75 a week as a part-time youth pastor. So I spent almost an entire month's salary on candles 
to impress my girlfriend so that hopefully she would agree to become my fiance and eventually my wife. But the wind kept blowing out these candles every time we'd light them. I had friends, you know, from my dorm and they were down there trying to light all these things. And as soon as we'd get them lit, they would blow out. And eventually the time got to be so late that I was like, guys, we'll just have to go with what we got. I don't, I don't know. Hopefully this won't be too disappointing to her. And so I call Amber she meets me down in the tea garden. She has no idea what's coming. That's one thing I did very well. I surprised her. She didn't know about it. And so she comes walking into this very, very gorgeous environment, and probably 10% of the candles were actually lit. So she sees all of these candles everywhere, but only a tiny fraction of them are actually flaming. Now, the good news is when I got down on one knee and I said all my fancy words and I proposed to her, she said yes. Because although I was trying to make this grand gesture to the love of my life, it turns out that the love of my life wasn't really looking for a grand gesture. She didn't need a grand gesture in order to understand that I loved her. Turns out I could have proposed in an Arby's parking lot and she would have said yes, it wouldn't have mattered at all. Thankfully, I didn't. But still, she wasn't looking for that. Because you don't prove that you love somebody with grand gestures. You prove that you love somebody by the way that you treat them in your relationship day in and day out. Isn't that true? Like imagine, ladies, that you're downtown somewhere and some guy just comes walking up to you and he's got a giant bouquet of flowers and he gets down on one knee and he's like, milady, and he gives you this big proposal, but he's a total stranger, Even if he's hot, you are not going to say yes to him because you don't know him. You don't have a relationship with him. You're not looking for a grand gesture. You're looking for somebody who is going to love and serve you day in and day out within the context of a relationship. Now, as we get into week three of our series, The Art of Being Unordinary, I want you to understand that what is true about our relationships with each other is also true of our relationship with God. That is, a lot of us get the wrong idea about who God is and what he expects from us. We think, oh, you know, God is waiting for me to make some grand gesture to him that proves that I love him, that proves that I'm devoted to him. I've got to go big or I might as well go home. I've got to give up something huge. I've got to make some giant sacrifice in order to gain God's attention, in order to earn God's favor. But when you read the Bible, you know what you find out? God isn't looking for grand gestures either. God is actually looking for you to do something much more subtle, but it turns out it's also more powerful. So we're going to read in Micah chapter number six this morning. I'm pretty excited to get into this passage. We're going to put it here on the screen. You can follow along there if you like. Let me tell you a little bit about the book of Micah and how it leads us into uh, kind of our understanding of what God wants from us and how we can live this unordinary, this extraordinary life. First of all, Micah is found in the Old Testament. If if you're not familiar with how the Bible is divided up, the first part of it is before Jesus was born. That's called the Old Testament. The second part after Jesus is called the New Testament. So Micah is in the Old Testament before Jesus was born. That means this was written like a thousand years or almost a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. All right. And uh, Micah is called a minor prophet. In the Old Testament, there are major prophets and there are 
minor prophets. Now, the reason that we call them major and minor prophets is not because the minor ones are unimportant. It just means they were brief. That's it. It means the writings, the speeches they gave were very short. So I would probably be a major prophet, right? Because I just tend to ramble on. These guys were minor prophets. And so there are several of them. And in fact, these guys all together, if you were to take all the minor prophets, they don't equal um, a length. The books of these smaller Bibles don't equal a length as some of the major prophets like Jeremiah and Daniel. Now, the only reason anybody ever pays attention to poor old Micah, right? Like the only reason anybody knows about his book in the Bible is because of two verses. The first one is Micah 5.2, which is a prophecy, a prediction that the Messiah was going to be born in what town? Do you guys know? Bethlehem, right? Christmas time. It makes sense. That prophecy was originally made in the book of Micah. The other reason anybody ever talks about Micah, and the only other reason, is because of Micah 6, 8, the passage that you see here on the screen. This is genuinely my, one, one of my top three favorite passages in the Bible. It really is. Romans 8 is number one. Micah 6 is number two. And then after that, there's a whole bunch of verses that I can't make up my mind on. This is the only section of verses that I've ever thought about getting tattooed on myself. Genuinely, this is the only one I ever considered. But then I thought, man, I don't know, a pastor with Bible tattoos, it's too cliche for me, and so I didn't do it, okay? Um, this passage is really about people who are at an interesting transition point in their lives. And some of you are going to see yourself in their situation. See, life had been going very good for the Israelites. These are the people that Micah was writing to, ancient Jews. Life had been going very good for them, both individually and nationally for quite a while. But they had started to drift a bit from God. They'd started to do their own thing, go their own way, and they had drifted away from God, and some bad things started to happen. And so they start thinking to themselves, what are we going to have to do to get God's attention? Like here we are, we're struggling, we're suffering, life is not going for us the way that it was before. What are we going to have to do to get God to pay attention to us and give us his favor once again? So let's read this passage together. Micah chapter number six. Uh, This is what the scripture says if we start here in verse number six. These uh, people, the Israelites are saying, what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? That is, what can we do to gain God's attention? What, hey, I'm over here. God, I need your help. Are you ignoring me? What's going on? What can I do to gain God's attention and favor? Should I bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with the offerings or sacrifices of yearling calves? Now, in the Old Testament, we've talked about this quite a bit lately. People were required to make animal sacrifices in order to uh, atone or make up for their sins. And so they're thinking like, okay, do we need to go back to religion? Do we need to go back and do the basics of the Old Testament in order to get God's attention so that he'll come and rescue us? Then in verse number seven, their kind of inner dialogue, their cultural dialogue, it takes a bit of a shift. It gets a little sarcastic, quite honestly. It says, uh, what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearly calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? It's like they go through this progression where they're like, God, God, hey, uh, if you'll come help me, I promise I'll do all the stuff I'm supposed to. I'll go offer the sacrifices you tell me to. I just need you to bail me out. And then God doesn't show up. And they're like, God, come on. And then eventually it's like, oh, Oh, seriously, is he ever going to show up? Does he hear us? Does he listen? What's it going to take to get God to notice me? Am I going to have to sacrifice a thousand animals? What does he want? My firstborn son? It gets really, really intense very, very quickly. 
So then the Bible kind of pauses in Micah, the prophet, who in this particular circumstance is speaking to the people on God's behalf. Micah says to them in verse number eight, no, no, old people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's a beautiful passage of scripture, man. It's poetic. It's got rhyme and rhythm. It sounds wonderful to the ear and like to the heart, right? This is what God is after, that we would do the right thing, that we would love people with mercy and grace, and that we would continually walk with God each and every day. Do you know what this passage teaches us? And I'm going to give you the teaching point for this morning really quick, just right off the bat, because I want you to kind of carry this with you throughout the next 20 minutes or so of our message. This passage tells us that God is not looking for grand gestures. God is just looking for faithful followers. That's all God is after in your life, in my life. This is all God's been after from the beginning. Thousands of years ago when people are like, what do I have to do? God is not looking for some grand gesture. He's looking for people who will follow him faithfully day in and day out. Have you ever tried to grand gesture God? Have you ever done that before? I know I certainly have. There's a time in your life where maybe like the Israelites, you're starting to drift away from God, right? And over time, things start to get a little worse and things aren't quite going your way. And all of a sudden, it feels like life capsizes. Everything gets flipped upside down. It could be like a broken relationship. It might be a financial difficulty that you go through. It could be that you hit a dead end in life. You were sure this was your path and then it didn't work out. You could have had your heart broken. I mean, there are any number of things that might have caused this. But it's like over time, we have this tendency to drift. And then when things go topsy-turvy, when our life capsizes, we think to ourselves, oh, God, uh, God, I need you. I need to get his attention. Come, come rescue me, God. I'm sorry I drifted, but I need you to come. Come on, let's go. I'm here. I need help. I'm drowning, right? It's like we're trying to gain God's attention. We're trying to earn God's favor, and we'll do like anything we possibly can. The bigger the gesture, the more likely we think God is to actually come to our rescue. So we show up to church three weeks in a row. It's like, God, I don't have enough money to pay the bills. I need you to come through. Tell you what, I'll show up every single Sunday this month if you'll show up at the end of the month to help me out. We'll uh, put money in the plate, you know? Maybe we've got a relational difficulty and we're like, oh God, I just need some help. It's like my wife and I were constantly fighting and struggling. I don't know what to do. So let me give you some sort of gesture to prove that I love you, God, and I'm worthy of you coming to my rescue. We'll offer these grand bargains to God, you know? We'll say, God, if you'll just do this for me, I promise I'll do all of these things. And we make this long list of promises of stuff that we're probably never gonna follow through on, right? We, we pull out the Bible and we pretend to enjoy reading it. We're like, God, look at me. I'm such a good, I'm a good Christian. Look at this. We schedule a meeting with the pastor. We do all of these different things. And in reality, they're just grand gestures. It's like our attempt to prove something to God that, hey, I'm here and I need you. Not only that, God, but I deserve you. You need to come and rescue me right now. We make these grand gestures, but there are a couple of problems. First of all, 
Our grand gestures often don't even make sense, you guys. They don't make sense like at all. We'll make a big promise to God and it has nothing to do with the actual situation we're in or we'll do like the Israelites did and we'll say, okay, God, if you'll do this for me, then I promise I'll pray or I'll go to church or I'll read the Bible. And to me, that's a lot like your teenager getting busted for coming in late at the end of the night and they're like, dad, don't ground me, okay? If you don't ground me, I promise you I'll do the dishes, And you're like, you're supposed to do the dishes anyway. You haven't been doing the dishes? You don't get out of trouble because you agree to do what you're supposed to do. And yet we have this tendency to try to do that with God. Our our grand gestures, they go like huge, off the rails big in some cases. Did you know in the Philippines, some of you guys are Filipino, in the Philippines, there are dozens and dozens of people that every Easter allow themselves to be crucified, actually nailed with real hammers and nails to a cross so that they can somehow prove their devotion to God. That's like the biggest gesture I could possibly imagine. Apparently, I don't love God that much because I would never go do that. We make these huge gestures. God, look at me. Look at what I'm doing to gain your attention and to gain your favor. They get silly too. Maybe they're not as violent or huge as that, but sometimes our grand gestures to God are are just plain silly. So when I was a teenager, I didn't grow up in the youth group. I started going to youth group when I was about 16 or so. And one of the very first things I learned in youth group was that my youth pastor told me that my musical choices were keeping me from God. I don't know if you grew up in a youth group. I don't know if your youth pastor ever told you this, but he basically said, until I decide to get rid of my quote unquote secular CDs, that there was no way I was going to be able to have a relationship with God. And so he invited all the kids in the youth group to make this grand gesture. You know what the grand gesture was? Those of you that grew up in church, you know exactly where I'm going with this. We gathered up all of our Nirvana and Warren G CDs and we brought them to the church and they made a bonfire and we threw them in. I'm not kidding you. It was the grandest gesture I think I ever made to God. That was hard. It hurts. Now, just to be clear, in our youth group, we're never going to do anything like that. Our youth group meets Thursdays, 7 p.m. in Evanston. It's killer. It is such an awesome, awesome time for teenagers and young people. I would encourage you to make your kids a part of that. Get them involved. They'll want to keep going. But we are never going to do that sort of grand gesture, a CD bonfire. We're never going to do that at Connect for, again, a couple of different reasons. Number one is nobody has CDs anymore. So if we were trying to get the kids to give up their secular music, it's like, now I want you to click drag on all those files and pull them down and into the desktop. Put them into the trash. It just doesn't have the same oomph as a fire does. That's the first reason that we would never do anything like that. The second reason, and obviously the really important reason, is that I've found in my life that grand gestures don't really work. We make these grand gestures to God. God, I need you. You got to come through. You got to bail me out. And so I'm going to do something to prove that you should, to gain your attention, to earn your favor. And it almost never works. Why? Because the promises that we make to God as a part of our grand gestures, we break them as soon as the situation is resolved, don't we? It's like we keep up with our our spiritual habits or whatever we promised God we were going to do. We do it for a week, and then things straighten themselves out, and we're like, okay, I don't need to do that anymore. When I was a kid, 
and I had to throw all my CDs in the fire, you know what I did? A month later, I went out and bought all the same CDs. So my youth pastor was actually having the opposite effect than he, I think he intended to because Kurt Cobain and his wife and his band, they ended up getting like double and triple money from me because I kept throwing these CDs in the fire as a part of a grand gesture. That never, ever worked out. Our grand gestures end up not paying off in the long run. And here's the real kicker. When you feel like you have to make some over-the-top, huge sacrifice in order to gain God's attention and to convince him that he should come over and bail you out of whatever situation you're in, when you believe that's how you need to approach God, you actually betray what you think about God. See, if you think that God is over there and he's angry and he's frustrated and you've got to do something to win him over, something to prove that you're not half as bad as it seems like you are in this situation, if you have that sort of mindset, what you're really doing, whether it's unconscious or uh, consciously, you are actually carrying around the mindset that God is against you, not for you. You are walking through life believing that his default position is anger or judgment. It's cursing and disappointment. So you think, okay, I've got to convince him. I've got to win him over some way, somehow. I'm going to go to church or I'm going to give or I'm going to read or I'm going to break up or whatever it is. But God, you've got to come through. I need you and, and I just wish you would see what I'm offering you here. Our assumptions are actually voiced there in Micah chapter number six, verse seven. This is an ancient group of people, and yet they're saying the exact same thing that you and I say in our minds all the time. They're saying, what do I have to do, God? Should I sacrifice my firstborn son? Look at that verse. Should I sacrifice my firstborn child? Is that what it's gonna take to get your attention? so that you'll come through, so that you'll show love and and come and rescue me? The reason that Micah 6 is so powerful to me, the reason that this is one of my favorite sections in the Bible is that line right there. It is so dripping with cluelessness and irony. And when I read it, I'm like, dang, I think I said that about four times this week. Maybe not those exact words, but I'm like, God, you got to come through. I need you. Where are you? Why is this taking so long? Help me. Don't you see what I'm giving up here? The irony, the irony in all of this is that although we're thinking God is angry, he's judgmental, he's over there, and he's waiting to punish me, so I've got to make some grand gesture to restore the relationship and prove that I'm worthy of his love and salvation and all that stuff. The irony is, while we carry around that mindset, the same mindset from Micah 6, the Bible describes God in the exact opposite way. If we were to compare Micah 6, this sarcastic, God, what do I have to do? How long is it going to take? What do you want me to give up so that you'll finally come through for me? If we were to compare this passage with a passage in the New Testament, 1 John chapter number 4, I want you to read how the Bible actually describes God. Micah 6 is what we think reality is like, is what we think we need to do with God. But listen to what the scripture says in 1 John chapter number 4, verses 9 and 10. The scripture says, God already showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. I don't want you to miss the parallels 
The sarcastic people are like, God, what's it gonna take? Am I gonna have to sacrifice my firstborn son? And 1 John says, no, because God did sacrifice his one and only son. The scripture says, this is real love. Not that we loved God. Our grand gestures don't prove squat. They don't prove anything. Anybody can make a grand gesture and follow through for a week. It's not about our love. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And what did he do? He sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Do you understand that your grand gestures don't ever amount to much because God has already made the grandest gesture in Jesus. There's nothing you can do that's gonna top that, guys. I don't care how much you give up. I don't care how much of the Bible you read. You're never gonna top the gesture that God has already made to you in Jesus. We say it facetiously, God, am I gonna have to sacrifice my firstborn son? God did it truly. He actually sent Jesus into the world to die, to pay for our sins sins and our mistakes. Do you understand this means you do not have to get God's attention. His attention has been on you this whole time. It's not like you're like, hey God, come on, I'm drowning. I need your help. Come to my rescue. He already knows that. You don't need to prove your love to God. You need to trust his love for you that's been proven in Jesus. You need to keep that in your heart. Not, what do I have to do so that God will come through for me? No, 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 no. God has come through for you. He's done everything that needs to be done. And if you will trust in that, you will see his deliverance. You will see his salvation. It is in his nature to come and rescue. Do you understand? This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the Christian faith, that God is not against you. God is for you. God's default position to you is not anger. It's not judgment. It's not waiting to squish you like a bug for all your stupidity. That is not his default position. Yes, your sins, my sins, they have separated me from God. But God loves us so much that he refuses to leave us stranded and sinking. When we are hopeless, when we are helpless, God isn't waiting on us to prove that we deserve him to come to our rescue. It is his nature. It compels him. He has to come rescue. He has to love. He has to forgive. He has to heal because this is what the Bible says God is. We have the wrong idea. We think I got to win him over. I got to convince him. I got to prove my love. Listen, save your grand gestures for your wife, okay? (laughs) Trust in God's grand love for you. Believe that, yes, your stupidity has brought you far away from God. You have drifted, and yet he loves you so much that he's not going to let you drift away indefinitely, that he has already done everything that's necessary to rescue you in Jesus. Now, listen, when you understand this, when this sinks in, the beauty and the magnitude and the depth of this idea that God is not for me, God is against me. God is not waiting for me to sacrifice an animal or give up something as some uh, part of some grand gesture in my life to prove anything. When that sinks in, 
when it settles into your heart and in your mind, there is a confidence and a freedom that you will find nowhere else in life. When you believe that God knows you fully and loves you anyway, that's like being set free. It changes the way you view yourself. It changes the way you view the world around you. It changes the way you view God himself. Listen, if you want to be unordinary, then dwell on that thought. Meditate on it. Pray over it. Think about it day in and day out. Each and every hour, remind yourself that God loves you fully, or he knows you fully, and he loves you completely. We have like this fear, right? We all carry it around. I do. I'm not scared to admit it. You might be, but I'm not. We all carry around this fear that if, if the people around us actually knew us, they wouldn't want anything to do with us. Like, I fear if my wife knew every thought that went through my head, she would not want to be my wife anymore. If my friends knew everything I've done in life, they might not want to be my friend anymore. I'm afraid that if I were really known, I would be really rejected. That is impossible with God. He knows you fully, and he loves you completely. Why is that? It's because of this idea, this reason. God's love is based on his character, not your behavior. When I say God's default position is for you, not against you, when I say his nature compels him to come to your rescue, whether you make some grand gesture or not, what I mean is it is his character that's on the line. It is his character that you can trust and rely on, not your behavior, because your behavior doesn't really get you very far. You're inconsistent. You give up. You lie. You twist the truth. You fool yourself. You fool your wife. You try to fool God, but that doesn't happen. If it were based on our behavior, then that would not be good news. The good news of the Bible, of Christianity, of Jesus, is that God's love for us is not based on our behavior. It is based only and completely on God's character. Yes. Now look, if that's what you believe, if that is the fundamental lens through which you view everything around you, then you will find yourself living out Micah 6, 8. That, that passage that we read there, we'll put it back on the screen because I want to highlight a few things. It would have been very easy for me to get up here and to preach to you this morning. You know what you need to do? You need to act right. That's what the Bible says. You need to love mercy. Do it or I'm going to get you, right? It would have been very easy for me to say, go do, go do, go do. But you will never be able to do until you understand what has been done. You will never, ever, ever be able to comprehend how much God loves you if you believe that that love is based on your performance. So you've got to get the front end. You've got to understand Micah 6, 6, and 7, and 1 John chapter number 4, before you can move on to verse 8. But if you have that thought, if it is the foundation of every single thing you think and do, you will find yourself loving mercy. It'll just be the air you breathe. It'll be the water that you swim in each and every day. If God's default position towards us is love and mercy and grace, 
then my default position towards everybody else can be love and mercy and grace. I will believe the best about other people instead of assuming the worst. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt every single time. You know why? Because that's what God does for me. I won't judge them based only on their behavior. I want to judge them based on my character, on, on who God has called me to be, not just what God has called me to do. When people let you down, you'll love them still. When you get to know the worst about the people in your office, you won't write them off, you won't stab them in the back, you won't undermine them and do everything you can to throw them under the bus and get them fired. You'll love them because that's what God does for us. That's what God does for us. And if God treats me that way, how can I do anything but treat you guys that way? How can you do anything but treat your friends and family and acquaintances and neighbors? How can we do anything besides treat them with mercy and grace and love instead of hate and suspicion and judgment? It'll cause us to pursue peace. It'll cause us to to revel in reconciliation because our relationship with God is right and that compels us to try to set every other relationship right as well. We will walk in mercy. We will love it to the very depths of our soul because we know we are undeserving recipients of God's mercy in our lives. If God were to judge me based only on my grand gestures, I don't deserve anything from him. But if God judges me based on his character, and the Bible says his character is love, then I am going to swim in that love. I am going to walk in that mercy every single day. When that's the foundational think, uh, th- thought that you have, the, the way that you think and, and process the world, do you understand that that will translate into your behavior? You'll love mercy, that's the thought life, but it'll also cause you to act justly, to do the right thing. You'll do the right thing instead of the easy thing. When you're following in these footsteps, when you know that you are loved and accepted by God, it'll cause you to do the right thing, not the profitable thing. It'll cause you to do the right thing, not the thing you can get away with. Because this understanding of what God has done on my behalf, I just don't understand how I can continue to live my old way of life when my eyes have been opened in this way you will act justly. Listen, you'll allow yourself to be taken advantage of before you ever take advantage of somebody else. If it's gonna go one way or the other, take advantage of me. I'm telling you right now, come take advantage of me. I don't care. God lets me take advantage of him every single day. It's true. I wanna do the right thing, not so that it's some grand gesture that gains God's attention and affection. I wanna do it because he made the grand gesture to gain my attention, to earn my affection to say, Dan, I'm over here, man. I want you to come walk humbly with me. Do you understand the difference? We're not over here calling God to our side. God's over here calling us to his side. He's made the grand gesture. And when you understand that, when that really sinks in, then you will walk humbly with your God. That word your is really important. It doesn't say you'll walk humbly with God. It doesn't say you'll walk humbly with the God. 
but it's your God. Do you understand that in Christ, we have the opportunity to have an actual personal relationship with God? I don't talk about God as some abstract concept. I talk about him as my father in heaven because he's not just a God. He's not just the God, but he is my God. So we wrap up this morning. I want to give you the opportunity to make him your God. I want you to have the chance to respond to God and say, wow, I've never heard about God like this. I didn't understand this is what Christianity was about. I thought it was all about be a good person so that God will love you and accept you. And that just seems very hypocritical to me. You're right, it is. And that's the exact opposite of what we preach and teach here at Connect because it's the exact opposite of what Jesus taught and preached when he was here on this earth. We are known fully and we are loved completely because God's love is based on his character, not our behavior. 